Welcome to the Lifting Lindsay podcast. Today, I have a special treat for you. You don't have to listen to me ramble for like 30, 45 minutes straight. I have Sam Miller on here with me, and I'm really excited to talk to him. I've invited him on here for a few reasons. One, um, I discovered him a really, really, really long time ago when he very first published like this PDF book on the basics of like hormones. And what I like about Sam is I felt like he could take very complex things such as hormones and really break it down and make it very easily digestible for those of us who aren't on his level, if you will. And I felt like he would be perfect to have on the show to talk about a few things, um, such as metabolism and metabolism health and how hormones play a role in that. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, fat loss and how you can maximize your metabolism to help with that. Um, I don't know. Is there anything, Sam, you want to say about yourself before we dive into my questions that I have? No, I'm happy to be here and honored to be, I guess, your first guest as far as the Lifting Lindsay podcast goes. Um, I know I've seen and crossed paths with you a number of times on Instagram, so it's exciting to be able to do the podcast. Um, And, you know, metabolism is something that I've been focused on for a long period of time because I feel like even before I was a coach, it's just there's so much misinformation out there in the industry and a lot of um, even the good information that's out there is misapplied to people in their transformations. So kind of set out to simplify that um, in a number of ways through my content and the most recent book that I've been working on, and also even teaching coaches how to essentially articulate these types of concepts for their clients. And so um, that's kind of been my focus over the last really 15 years or so um, since coming into the industry. And I've just constantly been sort of fascinated by it, first in my own transformation and then working with clients myself. Um, and now being able to help coaches with their client cases uh, through our program, uh, which is FNMS inside of Metabolism School. So I'm super excited to be here. And it's something that I love to talk about because, you know, it impacted me in my own health journey. And then also I've seen it, you know, impact hundreds, if not thousands of lives along the way. Awesome. And I think I saw that you've, you've kind of, you've done, a sh- you've done shows before, right? You were into yes. bodybuilding. So do you know what I love about having people who have done shows before is I feel like, or love talking to them. Cause yeah, yeah. You are the very first person that I'm interviewing here, but, um, I love talking to people who have done shows before because I feel like this about fitness and about health in general. I feel like we all start out where we need simplicity. We just need simplicity. You first start getting into learning about health and fitness and it's like, okay, I I should move more. I should eat whole foods. Like we all kind of know these simple things. And then you start following a bunch of people on Instagram or on social media and all of a sudden there's this level of complexity that you can kind of get lost in. And even coaches get lost in it. Um, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's fun to study the complexity, to understand it. I think it's important that that coaches do that. But it's interesting because I feel like in this, there's a natural movement to it's simple at first, then you enter complexity. And then the more you learn, you almost can pull out what you need to know from the complexity and you land on the other side back to simplicity. And so I'm kind of hoping that that's kind of what we can do today is show people, yeah, there's a ton of complexity and we can get lost in that and you can get lost in it, but let's figure out ways that we can land on the other side of, of it and come back to a more simplistic approach. Like you don't have to be getting your glucose readings, um, you know, after every meal or after every hour or two hours, like that's a level of complexity that 99.9% of people just don't need. And so let's let's start with talking about this. Metabolism, that word alone is just thrown out there. What, what does it mean? And where do you feel like people get tripped up with, um, with that? I feel like people get tripped up with the idea or concept of metabolism because ever since, you know, you're a little kid, you know, you go to school and maybe you're taught when you're younger, oh, well, someone who 
you know, can eat whatever they want and they don't gain weight. Oh, they have a quote unquote fast metabolism or, you know, maybe your friend that was, you know, always seemed to be just slightly above maybe normal kind of weight, um, for their height. You know, that person would be defined as having a slow metabolism and we don't really ever learn, um, you know, whether it's as children or even for folks, you know, coming through, um, any type of like education process, um, related to physical education, health, exercise, et cetera. You know, we don't really learn about the things that are specifically influencing metabolism, how they influence them and why, and how nutrition is so, uh, integrated with that. And so people kind of begin to grow up essentially with a fixed mindset around metabolism or like I'm born with this metabolism the way that it is rather than looking at it as well, my metabolism is a byproduct of daily practices that I have and essentially my past diet practices over time and my lifestyle over time. And so instead of understanding that metabolism is actually quite malleable and adaptable, we start to think, oh, well, this is the metabolism that's been like given to me or like it's hand-me-down clothes from like an older sibling or something when that's really not the case, you know, metabolism is very much a byproduct, um, of our, you know, behaviors and food choices and these things that compound over time. And granted, if you haven't maybe been making, um, the right choices for your goals for a substantial period of time, there is sort of this like weighted average or compound effect of what happens in terms of your metabolic health. But I think if people zoom out and first begin to understand, okay, what are some of the variables that influence my metabolism and metabolic health? be a lot less overwhelming and we'd have a lot more traction in our transformation in terms of, you know, okay, here's what I actually do next. Ooh, I love that. Okay. So a lot of times women will come to me and they have, uh, been diet. I think this is so common that they have either mentally or physically been trying to diet for ever since they were like 12. Right. So you're saying that where their body is in the moment isn't just what was given to them genetically, that they've actually spent years and years setting themselves up to either succeed or fail in that moment. And I love how you said it's, it's, it's like it comes back to a growth or fixed mindset. Like it's the same thing with your, with your body. So then what do you, what do you do for women who have mentally emotionally and physically been dieting for so long because they'll hire me and they'll want to go right back into a diet. Right. Right. So our, you know, our receptivity to a current diet is largely going to be based off of the depth, duration, and frequency of past diets. So if we've, you know, been trying to lose the same five pounds or same 10 pounds for a long period of time, well, number one, if we're on attempt number 17, well, we likely didn't choose the best approach for hitting our goals, number one. So we need to reevaluate and take a different approach because now we're essentially spinning our wheels. We haven't really moved forward. Um, You know, in terms of the comment around, okay, we think it's genetics. Really, if we look at our current physiology, which is really just a fancy way of saying our internal health, or if we're looking at our metabolism and metabolic health and things like that, um, it's, it's largely a byproduct of, like I said, we have certain daily practices. It's also, you know, perceptions like our relationship with food and exercise, because that may lead us to, if we have been trying to diet since we're 12, maybe we're starting to do things that, um, aren't the best for us. Like we have an unhealthy relationship with exercise or, you know, we're going to the gym six days a week when that's not really actually optimal. Uh, we're not able to achieve progressive overload because we're not recovering properly. And now we're just completely working against all of the, essentially established scientific principles for making progress in a transformation. So, you know, your metabolism, there's certainly, yes, there's some genetic components of, you know, what is provided to you, but what's even more important is the expression, you know, of those genes, which largely is a byproduct of our environment, our choices, you know, behaviors over time, you know, uh, what we've been eating for years, you know, if not decades. And so when we start to think of it that way and really just understand our meta- our metabolism is essentially trying to monitor and hedge against stress and energy threats. So that would mean, you know, thousands of years ago, um, is there enough food around? Um, and especially for women, this is important because, you know, pregnancy and cycle health is such an important part of, um, you know, women's physiology, but we essentially have to hedge against energy threats and we have to, 
you know, deal with stress, which could come in a number of different forms and fashions. And so what our metabolism is really trying to do is find this sort of equilibrium point or homeostasis, and it is monitoring the inputs of stress and energy. And so this, you know, the more we can understand how we are either providing certain stimulus or you know, certain stressors that maybe are helpful or hurtful to us, and the sooner we can begin to kind of take inventory of that, you know, we can begin to audit, create awareness and change our behaviors. Um, I think that can go a really long way for folks. But the first thing we have to understand is, you know, metabolism, unless you have um, a preexisting condition of some kind or a chronic illness, you know, usually what we're currently experiencing in our frustrations, whether it's related to fat loss, muscle gain, or anything else, quality of life, biofeedback, hormonal dysfunction, largely driven by our lifestyle. And so when we're able to unpack that and we can look at, okay, what behaviors uh, are triggering this, we start to see that sometimes it's very simple actions that lead us down a path from, okay, we were healthy, we were at the status quo, we moved to maybe a place of suboptimal, maybe we move to dysfunction, and then you know you will even see sometimes go as far as autoimmune disease. So we're moving from essentially this normal gradient, now we've slid down this path, and then you'll see women who have like, Hashi, you know, Hashimoto's or, you know, another form of an autoimmune condition. And largely that's due to, um, you know, what's going on, the, going on in the body at that point in time. So super important to understand that most people don't just wake up one day and, you know, have this sort of current status. It's largely something that's compounded over years. And, you know, part of it is our responsibility, which is a little scary in a way, but part of it is also diet culture, the fitness industry, um, maybe lack of adequate education, poor coaching. You know, if you go back to like 1987, we thought SlimFast was the solution, right? So clearly as an industry, <laughs> like we've had yeah. to come a long way to get to where we are today. There's certainly been a lot of misinformation out there, but the sooner we can sort of audit things, you know, track what's going into our current metabolic status quo, you know, the sooner we can make some positive changes and move towards our goals. I love that. So I have Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, and it's interesting because a lot of times women will, when they hear that, they'll come to me and be like, oh, okay, so you know how hard it is to lose weight. What are you doing? They think that I'm doing some magic thing because I have Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism. And um, I'm like, well, I honestly, it's it's just the dailies. It really comes back to the dailies. It comes back to, I'm not over stressing my body. I'm focusing on recovery. There are some things that I cannot do, um, which would be a uh, hit will like kills me. Hit just will uh, put me under. Like I can't recover from lifting weights plus doing hit. And unfortunately, I had hired somebody who they were a wonderful coach. I really respected him and loved him. But I really wanted to do a. I didn't want to do a show, but I did want to. I wanted to experience that type of extreme dieting, if you will, that bodybuilding, and then do a photo shoot. And he kept adding more and more hit. And my body just like a stopped. Metabolic phase for your training and you struggle with that. Yeah, it it definitely took a toll on my recovery. He was having me lift six days a week, doing hit four times a week. And there's just my body just could not recover from that. So it is interesting that I have noticed that I have to prioritize recovery, like really prioritize, but everybody does. Everybody should at least. Have you experienced though where people with autoimmune disease, they have to have more recovery? I think it depends on what phase they're currently in and what's driving the autoimmunity. So we certainly see a lot of times autoimmune conditions have sort of association with um, gut dysfunction or something is mm -hmm. going on at a deeper level. Um, so the hormone dysfunction is there. You have to ask yourself, is this sort of a symptom and result of the current lifestyle? Um, are there underlying factors that could be driving the potential issue? So I've certainly seen that both for women who maybe are um, suffering from an autoimmune disease, or we also see kind of in the perimenopausal phase that sometimes uh, finding that balance between resistance training, a walking program, getting non-exercise activity up, those things can be really helpful versus maybe conventional cardiovascular exercise or high intensity interval training. And really starting with those foundations of resistance training and uh, movement just to get 
total daily energy expenditure increased. And that can be very helpful from an overall metabolic health perspective, while also you know, not putting too much stress in the body since something like walking or non-exercise activity, getting outside, it's relatively parasympathetic or essentially, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's better for your recovery and you don't get quite as much nervous, nervous system stimulation, but you're still actually burning calories while you're moving. So it can be really great in that fashion. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I want to talk about the big rocks. What do you feel like are the big rocks to metabolic health? So if I only could do say like five things for people across the world, um, I definitely think protein intake is one because it helps so much with appetite management, satiety, adherence, and a lot of protein rich foods. If we're making intelligent choices from the perspective of single ingredient, um, nutrient dense foods, that's going to provide us with, you know, quite a bit of micronutrients, essential amino acids, and the actual macronutrient of protein. So protein is definitely a cornerstone item walking. And if you can do that walking outside, do a little bit in the morning, maybe a little bit post meal can be very helpful from a digestive perspective, blood sugar perspective, um, and just improving your overall quality of life. Uh, then, you know, you could add a, a walk later in the day potentially too, but we'll, we'll time that just depending on the individual and what's, what's working best for them in their schedule. But walking is huge protein intake, resistance training, sleep. And I, you know, picking for number five is like picking amongst children or, uh, in my case, my puppies. So I have a hard time kind of nailing it down for number five. I think in our modern society, stress and our ability to manage it is, you know, is definitely super important in terms of moving the needle when it comes to our um, transformation. But uh, if I, you know, because I already did protein, that's kind of my nutritional category. We've got the resistance training in there. We've got the walking, we've got the sleep, um, you know, some form of either stress management or like community connection components or our overall kind of outlook on life, which would, I would, I would include kind of those perceptions and relationship with exercise, relationship with food relationship, um, maybe with family members and friends and things like that, because oftentimes those things can really spill over into our transformation and our overall health. If we have, uh, maybe not the best sort of relationships, not the most supportive environment. So if I had to, maybe I'll, I'll kind of classify that one as environment if I had to for number five, <laughs> yeah. because I think there's a broader category of items that could fit into environment versus solely, uh, stress, but understand that part of your environment would be, you know, maintaining, uh, maintaining the appropriate level of kind of, whether that's work, uh, training, you know, family time, all the things that you need to be successful and not everybody necessarily has like the same exact dose response to those things. So I think having a sensitivity to that overall, um, and how that might impact you. Cause going back to like the autoimmune example you provided, I've seen some folks where it's like due to stress within a family environment or being that primary care provider or having, uh, maybe some toxic relationships with other family members, or even the loss of a family member playing a key role in the autoimmune cascade that we see for someone. So I think environment's super important. going to leave that at number five. Plus I can argue that that would include your outside environment. And then you can go get some sunlight too, get some vitamin D in, and then makes it nice and well-rounded so that I can cheat and have like eight things in my list of five things. <laughs> yeah. But I love that you brought up the stressors of life, because oftentimes we want to separate that from our body goals. We want to say, um, or at least clients have with me in the past, they want to say, no, 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 you do nutrition and training. Like the stressors going on in my life have nothing to do with this. Like my work, my family relationships, um, they have nothing to do with it. They're separate and I love the fact that you're bringing it home that there, there is, there's no separate, it all affects each other so much. Yeah. Health is just so integrated. It's super hard to parse that out, right? Like sleep was on my list. Well, if work is impacting your sleep or your kids are impacting your sleep, or, uh, maybe there's some other outside variables, you know, all of a sudden it starts to connect. And then based on your sleep, maybe if you don't get a great night's sleep, your appetite management is off. You're making different food choices. Maybe you don't have the best work, you know, workout or overall, you know, uh, exercise session or training session. And it just kind of like, there's a domino effect. So 
it's like having uh, these overlapping sort of circles or Venn diagram of sorts is really, really hard to separate everything so interconnected. Uh, and that's why I'm a big fan of taking this kind of 360 approach to client transformation versus solely focusing on, okay, here are your macros and go train four mm -hmm. or five days a week. I just don't know mm -hmm. that that's sufficient in all cases because so many other elements of life are going to impact you know, the hour or 90 minutes they're spending in the gym and the meal by meal decisions that are happening you know, are, are largely influenced by what's happening between those meals and, you know, the entirety of that person's life. So I really think a big picture approach is needed to be successful with folks, at least for sustainable long-term transformation. Mm -hmm. I'm sure someone could do that for 30 to 60 days and lose five pounds, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be successful and, you know, keep that, keep that off long-term. Yeah. And as a coach, the last thing that I want to do is set somebody up to succeed only for 30 to 60 days. If I if they can only succeed for that short amount of time, I feel like in a way I've failed them because the educational piece of of this being a lifestyle um, for light for your life has kind of slipped. And I think too, it's easy for coaches to kind of get caught up in that they they kind of hinge their credibility on a client losing weight and losing weight really fast. So that we can kind of show these, look what happened after 30, 60 days. Um, and sometimes those can be more damaging than helpful. I feel like those before and after pictures. Well, it's one of the reasons I started to venture down this rabbit hole of biofeedback and blood work and body composition and so many other things beyond just the before and after photo. And I'm a huge fan of someone having body composition goals or wanting to improve themselves or being like, Hey, I'm not exactly where I want to be and I would like to improve this and change the way mm -hmm. that I feel when I look in the mirror. I think that's, you know, if someone has those goals, more power to you. Let's support you in doing that. But I don't necessarily agree that the only thing we should be tracking is a before and after photo and scale weight. And while that might be a starting point, you know, there's other things we can be doing along the way to provide more education in the transformation process. But I'll also tell you that if you are you know, overweight or you're previously sedentary and we improve, you know, your overall nutritional patterns, we get you walking and maybe a little bit of resistance training. I can guarantee you that your serum labs, your blood work, they're going to change for the better in terms of things like triglycerides, lipids, fasted glucose, fasting insulin. And so as a coach, being able to understand that, Hey, there are changes happening at a deeper level. And sometimes things like scale weight might be a form of lagging feedback where we're engaged we're engaging in the appropriate behaviors. Maybe we hit our protein goal. Uh, we're hitting our target macronutrients. We went to the gym three days this week, but we didn't see results yet in terms of what we're seeing in the mirror or what we're seeing on the scale. And a lot of times that's where clients want to throw in the towel. So when you have other markers of progress, you know, non-scale victories, essentially, I think it's helpful for overall adherence in the transformation process, but also allows you to make more intelligent decisions related to periodization, overall nutrition protocol design, training program design, and things like that. So this is where as a coach and educator, I think it's important to say, yeah, we can still use the scale as a tool, as like a single data point. We can use tracking your food in a food journal or macros as a data point, but let's also talk about how you feel, subjective quality of life, biofeedback indicators. And if this is really about your overall health, you know, I kind of want to know what's going on metabolically as well in terms of some of those markers that are potentially, you know, implicated for things like longevity, cardiovascular disease, you know, and other um, sort of disease risk or disorders. So that's kind of why I, I look at the fitness industry, I zoom out, kind of look at that 360 approach and then come back and say, okay, cool. There's nothing wrong with tracking your macros. There's nothing wrong with having mm -hmm. a scale goal. There's nothing wrong with wanting to see maybe a slightly uh, more muscular, lean version of yourself in the mirror. But what's going to happen if you do exactly what your coach tells you to do for 10 days and you haven't hit your goal yet, or you haven't seen progress yet, are you going to throw in the towel? And that's where I think have, tracking the right things and having the right conversations about those things can be super powerful in leading someone to long-term success versus just that, you know, kind of uh, rapid sort of fad approach to fat loss. I love that. And that reminds me a few, oh man, it probably was a while ago that I saw you posted this, but it was something along the lines of women really can't look at 
the scale uh, over seven to 14 days and get a general good idea. I think you were saying that we women need to pull out even further and look and see trends over, you know, three, four weeks. Is there plateauing going on? So speak to us more about that. So when it comes to like, what is influencing that? Yeah. So when it comes to women's scale weight and cycle health and the relationship between those things, you know, I still think women can have that data point of maybe scale weight progress, but we need to consider that there might be slight differences in water retention across the menstrual cycle. So potentially your weight in the follicular phase may differ from your weight in your luteal phase. Now, if you're being very adherent to your protocol or program, being very consistent, you know, you're getting your sleep, getting your steps in, uh, on point with your nutrition, getting your resistance training sessions in, and let's say your weight is up slightly, that can be very discouraging if we don't understand that due to the hormonal fluctuations of the cycle, we may just see a slight change in scale weight. So by being able to zoom out and understand, okay, this is my weight across the month and from week to week. And also let's compare, okay, this is my month one follicular phase weight versus this is my month two um, follicular phase weight or month one luteal phase weight to month two luteal phase weight. You'll be able to identify patterns and see trends and have that kind of parallel structure. So whereas you know a, a male client may not experience those fluctuations in overall scale weight for a woman, part of that could be due to body water. Now, part of this is self-awareness and being honest with yourself that you are being consistent enough to where you can see these changes. But uh, unfortunately, you know, far too often women will really be uh, doing the right things and then they kind of throw their hands up in frustration when they see that or they feel a little bloated or they feel a little bit less comfortable or confident in their skin and they want to throw in the towel or they're like all this work this month was for nothing and then they potentially have some increased hunger and cravings around certain times relative to their menstrual cycle that you know kind of uh, impacts their decision making around that particular time and then we really do set ourselves back with the subsequent decisions that we make as a result of our frustration when really if we just you know stood the course and were consistent we'd probably be totally fine Exactly. No, that's so true. There's nothing special about seven days. I always tell people that there's nothing special. Like, why do we, why do we pick seven, 14 days? The calendar is so arbitrary. So in a transformation, when you're looking at something like how much progress did I make this week versus, you know, one month, et cetera. It's like, we're just operating on this system that someone else created, you know, as far as your body has this circadian or diurnal rhythm. And for women, we can extend that out further to the menstrual cycle. That's roughly 28 days or about a month. But other than that, you know, your body is not necessarily subject to this kind of annual calendar that we have, or even things like daylight savings that we've, you know, sort of imposed on society. You know, that's not, that's not exactly how your body works. Your body's not going to be completely (laughs) aligned with that, uh, which is why I think it's important to be able to track and uh, understand, you know, that we can go beyond sort of this seven day window, especially with things like scale weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I want to go back to sleep. Sleep is a hard one because I feel like a lot of us are addicted to Netflix, but <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But a lot of times with women, the frustration is, well, I have kids waking me up all through the night. Like, how am I supposed to sleep? And and then finally, when you do get your child to sleep, which is like in Sam, you don't have kids yet, do you? You said you had dogs. I have a puppy though who's just barely eight months old. He's milking me up okay. plenty over the past few months. Yes. Okay. Let's just let's let's use that as an example. No, but it can be really, really frustrating when you finally like you have to like it takes forever to get your child down. It's like an hour, two hours sometimes, and you get him down and you just want to relax. I I I don't think I want sleep. I think I want to show or something to, to relax me. Right. Um, and then they wake me up all through the night. It can be really frustrating when people are like, well, you need to focus on sleep. And I'm just like, how, I mean, right now I'm in a great place, but I do remember that feeling. And and a lot of my clients that are women, it's like, what do I do when I just can't sleep? So how, how should we, should we change the nutrition, the training? What would you be your suggestion on that? 
Sure. So, and I can also relate to this a little bit because I have nephews who are twins and they try to kill each other. And so I've certainly experienced this when uh, (laughs) visiting family over the holidays and things like that. The first thing I would speak to is a lot of people forget that kids have a circadian rhythm too. You know, they don't get the kids outside in the morning. Kids are spending a lot of time on screens nowadays. You know, they're not doing the same basic lifestyle practices for the family. They're not setting the tone. And if we can lead by example as, you know, family members and you know, elders in the, you know, sort of hierarchy of that family structure, I think that can be super powerful. So basic things, and especially even with young children, if they're struggling to get in a sleep routine, remember our optic nerves are sensitive to light. Our skin, you know, is, you know, basically absorbing that light when we're going outside. And a lot of people forget that while children are, you know, not exactly adults, we still have sort of these physiological rules that or guidelines that we need to sort of play by. So if you notice your kids are spending a lot of time inside, a lot of time on screens, uh, maybe, you know, also noticing their eating patterns, like what are they having before bed? Some basic lifestyle changes can help your kids also get into a better sleep routine, which, um, you know, I think for everyone, what we should be paying attention to is, you know, hopefully your very young children are not having caffeine, but for adults, you know, caffeine Mm -hmm. cut off. Um, for both kids and adults, things like temperature of the room, uh, the amount of light that is in that room. So having enough darkness, sound obviously can make a difference. We can look at, uh, meal timing, like monitor, you know, when your kids are having dinner or if they're, you know, eating again right before bed. And if that's potentially, you know, kind of track that a little bit, is that impacting sleep? And so there are tiny tweaks that we can make in our day to day, but I think just like adults, kids do need a bit of routine and structure and it can be difficult to get into that at first. But I've even had mentor clients who have had relatively newborns where even something like taking them outside, whether it's in a, you know, a little sort of baby backpack or going for a walk or putting them in the stroller and allowing them to get a small amount of sunlight can be super helpful in terms of their overall circadian rhythm and sleep. Now I'm not an expert on baby circadian rhythm by any means or, um, you know, parenting, but just from observing what's sort of been true for uh, both my family and folks that I've worked with in their families, I think we often forget that kids sometimes need some of these foundational healthy habits. And if mom and dad can do them and the kids can do them, then we're more likely to achieve it as a family, including mom's goals, right? So if you obviously work with a lot of moms, you know, we want to make sure, okay, well, what sort of uh, guidelines are we putting in place? What expectations are there? And that's something that um, you know my sister-in-law always did a very good job of with the twins. Is you know they always had a pretty solid routine and structure, which I think was helpful. Um, now they're getting a little more feisty, but overall, I think you know with younger children, it's still super important to keep that in mind. And you know if your kids have like huge bowl of ice cream and a bunch of you know other um, you know maybe food right before bed that you notice tends to disturb their sleep or something. Well, pay attention to that versus, you know, maybe there's, there's something else that we can be doing to kind of unpack that in the routine. Now, as far as taking care of, you know, mom and dad in that situation, or really, um, any adult who finds themselves in a child rearing situation, I would say generally as sleep goes down, we need to either back off training volume, intensity, or frequency to accommodate potential changes in recovery. So if I had, you know, a newborn, I'm probably not going to be at like the peak sort of overreaching phase of a training cycle, right? I need to back that down. And whether that's increasing reps and reserve or decreasing uh, perceived exertion of my training, that's basically a marker of intensity. Or maybe I'm just going to take one additional day off from the gym, or I'm going to, you know, take, take back some working sets and basically bring down that overall training volume. So if I'm sleep deprived, one of the best ways we can just attack that is, you know, let's maybe reduce the stimulus from a training perspective, unless it's just very acute sleep restriction. But if this is something ongoing that you've been experiencing for weeks or months at a time, it would probably make sense to adjust your training step, you know, your training style to your lifestyle so that we can actually continue to get results, progressively overload and move forward and, you know, do what we're setting out to do. With the transformation, so that would be one of my first things. I may replace that with walking so that we're not completely sedentary during that process. And getting outside is then further going to support a healthy circadian rhythm um, and sleep-wake cycle, basically. But to kind of consolidate that, if you're lacking sleep, pay attention to, you know, are you actually still recovering from your training? That would be my first big thing to pay attention to. And then the second thing is just, you know, the same rules of 
you know, light and dark and hot and cold and food timing and things like that do work for kids as much as they work for adults. So we need to be cognizant that, you know, they're humans too, as much as we may think that they're acting like little aliens at times, um, you know, (laughs) they are your children and they do still need certain environmental cues that we also need as adults. So I feel like you, you said it much nicer, like you said it very nicely that we do have more control than we think we do, right? We want to just say, oh, it's because of them that I can't do X, Y, and Z, but we really do have more control and we just have to focus. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say just, I almost hate that word when people are like, just do this, just do that, right? Because there's still effort. It's still going to be hard. But that growth mindset yeah, going, coming back like to that. Your kids waking you up and you not having sleep or taking, you know, Bam. Yep. 10 minutes and it may be hard, but it might, you might feel a lot better the next day when you actually get to sleep, you know, through the night. There's some supportive supplementation things that you can do as well. But I would say, you know, starting with some of that low hanging fruit is important. I just, I'm amazed at, you know, how much time kids do spend on screens nowadays and mm-hmm. lack of time outside and playing outside and, you know, basic things like exercise activity, and that can go a really long way. Um, so yeah, it's like either way, it's going to be hard, whether it's the nighttime wake-ups or potentially yeah. trying to uh, deploy this in your life. But personally, I would rather have the challenge of working on that day-to-day structure versus sleep interruptions constantly for, you know, a huge part of my life. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. So I want to talk a little bit about the stress too. Um, and also caffeine. You brought up caffeine. So what do you feel like is healthy caffeine consumption? What's gonna, what is that going to look like during the day? So I think a lot of people have different individual sensitivities to milligram amounts of caffeine. So rather than assigning, you know, an arbitrary dose for people, because obviously your size, you know, and a number of other things can impact caffeine. Caffeine is studied as an ergogenic aid. Basically, can it, you know, increase exercise performance and things like that? Cognition, help with sleep deprivation. The biggest thing I pay attention to with caffeine is more the cutoff of the caffeine. So, you know, if you want to have um, some coffee or another form of caffeine earlier in the day, I think that's okay within reason and moderation. The problem is when people are fatigued and they reach for that additional caffeine maybe right before dinner or they're having it and they forget that caffeine has a half-life. So when that caffeine is still in our system, you know, we're going to be up later or our sleep quality is going to decrease. Even if we get into bed and we fall asleep, it may not be the best sleep quality. So more importantly than trying to figure out the perfect dose for every single person, which would be beyond the scope of this podcast, I would focus more (laughs) on when am I cutting off this caffeine intake? And assuming you go to bed at a fairly normal time, usually for most folks, this is an early afternoon cutoff uh, in order to allow that caffeine to clear out of your system and uh, allow you to you know, get that quality rest that you need. Awesome. I, I have another question. This is totally off topic to some degree, but I really am curious about your opinion on this. Uh, there's oftentimes this debate of energy in and out versus hormones, like which matters. And sometimes I feel like, sometimes I feel like it's kind of a strange thing because people like they want to make it either or, do you know what I'm saying? Right. And I'm like, why is it either or? Why is this conversation even either or? Why can't we land somewhere in the middle and be like, it all matters? I don't know. What What's your opinion on that? I think a lot of times there's a few things going on there when we see people arguing about calories versus hormones. The first is we have different sort of internet influencers speaking to different audiences, right? And speaking to different avatars of people. And we also need to understand that the extremes drive attention. So when we're on a platform where we're rewarded for maybe, uh, pinpointing a particular argument that then leads to a lot of attention in the comments and the likes and the shares and the saves, well, that essentially grows their personal brand as a result of that. So having the most moderate sort of argument doesn't always necessarily work from the perspective of, you know, attention versus having, you know, people at two poles or two extremes, I think what ends up happening is, you know, there's a lot more attention drawn to that particular person. But 
to sort of simplify the calories versus hormones argument. They both matter, they're integrated, and our body is, you know, I've used the analogy of a factory before where the raw materials coming into the factory would be energy availability and the signals, the signs, the systems, the workers, the various infrastructure within that factory, the personnel, the maintenance of the machine, those types of things, that's essentially our internal health, our hormones, the chemical messengers that are required for making sure that the raw materials that are delivered to the factory end up as the work product that we ultimately want for the best possible quality of life and performance. Now, I'm not one of those people that is a proponent of hormones that says the calories don't matter because that's not true. Energy availability by itself, if we eat in excess, can drive things like insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, prediabetes. If we restrict calories and we have uh, not enough food for far too long, that can lead to things like relative energy deficiency syndrome or HA in women. So we don't have enough macro or micronutrients, and that can be very detrimental for cycle health in women. But we also see things like uh, some transient metabolic adaptation going on where you may have downregulation of thyroid hormones, reproductive hormones, and upregulation of things like cortisol and uh, you know essentially your HPA axis or the communication between your brain and your adrenal glands. So very directly, our calories that we consume can influence our hormones, but also depending on things like our sleep, our stress management, the food that we've eaten, our past dietary choices, our resistance training, that quite literally creates sort of this recipe or internal environment that is either going to create a certain level of receptivity to that food coming in and the exercise that we're doing, or there may be a bit of chaos and somewhat, you know, a little bit of dysfunction. I'm, I'm hesitant to use words like dysfunction and disease because once again, people get sort of that fixed mindset around metabolism as opposed to mm -hmm. understanding there are lifestyle practices and behaviors that can change that metabolic health. So calories and hormones both matter. They will always be important and intertwined. We can't separate them, but understand if you see people arguing on the internet, it's usually because some of the influencers on the calorie side feel as though the people who are, you know, pushing the hormone argument don't respect energy balance or the idea of energy availability. And then the folks on the hormone side feel as though the people who talk about calories in and calories out don't acknowledge the importance of internal health or metabolism when in reality, you know, they're nearly inseparable, I would argue. Mm -hmm. um, but once again, comes back to our lifestyle, our choices, you know, things that we're doing that are directly within our control, unless you have some sort of pre-existing condition, chronic illness or otherwise, there's a lot of stuff that we can do to optimize both our hormones and be mindful of energy in and energy out. They don't have to be in direct opposition to each other. I feel like what I'm hearing mostly from you during this episode is just, we have more control. We have far more control than oftentimes we want to think. Uh, sometimes I feel like the fear of focusing too much on hormones is that people are like, well, my hormones are my hormones. There's nothing I can do. I'm stuck here. And it goes back to that genetics things. This is, these are the cards I was handed. I'm like, no, there's, there's so much within our control. There's so much, but it comes down to these dailies that aren't as sexy as, I don't know. I just barely got this. <laughs> I just got this email saying, um, be one of our influencers, pee on this stick and we'll tell you your, your metabolic or like I, something about like your metabolism. Do you? <laughs> it's like breathe and on I this just, thing or pee on this or yes. whatever. I'm like, why do you, why does everyone just want these bodily fluids? Why can't I just go get some? Um, so it's very it interesting. I think the market is moving towards like people want an understanding of metabolism. And I do think hormone health is important. And sometimes people are frustrated because conventional approaches have failed them, but it may have been the sustainability of the approach. And also the level of customization and periodization that went into uh, the particular strategy. So it, it's not that we, you know, an energy deficit doesn't work. That's not true. It's that for that particular person, it's possible that their current, you know, overall energy expenditure or their overall metabolic health for whatever reason made it either less sustainable or um, frustrating to adhere to a particular protocol that would put them in that energy deficit or the hormonal milieu that's sort of going on is making it more difficult for them to feel as though they have, you know, if you, let's say you have low testosterone, low thyroid, 
you're not going to necessarily feel like going out and getting tons of steps and setting PRs in the gym, mm -hmm. having the best possible training sessions, right? Those down regulations will impact your energy expenditure, which, you know, directly influences calories in and calories out. So by optimizing and improving things like thyroid function and getting your testosterone levels to a better place, not only does it enhance your quality of life and just your mood and ability to kind of have that outlook on things, you might start actually expending energy both intentionally and unintentionally because you feel better, right? When you feel like garbage, you're probably less likely to show up for that training session to get those steps in and do the things you need to do. And so we have to understand that uh, the current hormonal status, especially when we're in a place of dysfunction or deficiency or lack of optimization, we may not be engaging in the behaviors because we're just in this sort of sullen, low mm. place. Now, there's probably behaviors and choices that got us there, but the reason that we focus on health and optimization is to get people back so that they're pursuing the behaviors that then can allow for that nutritional strategy to kind of do its thing. And so I think they go hand in hand um, rather than being these sort of separate arguments that people kind of post everywhere. So we do control more than we think, but also I do understand why sometimes people, they're frustrated, they're throwing their hands up, they're tired, they feel like the industry has failed them or certain fad approaches have failed them because they didn't mm -hmm. see the results that they were promised. But in reality, we have to understand a lot of times some of these false promises and these fads that are out there, um, you know, they're not specifically designed for you and your health history. And so we have to be cognizant of that and uh, also kind of respect the nuance that exists in nutrition. I love that. You, every single time you talk, there's just so much I want to unpack there. The thought that kept coming to me was it's interesting kind of this, this wave of uh, a lot of people are talking about reverse diets that healed me. Um, and I stopped doing cardio. I only do, did weights and that healed me. And sometimes I look at that and I think, isn't that fascinating that you may not understand what was going on in your body and why that was the answer, but isn't it fascinating that a lot of women are finding power in now they're being taught to, maybe they don't understand the whys, but they're being taught now, eat more, lift weights, walking is okay. And it can actually be better than all of the HIIT training. So we're stepping away from a lot of these former beliefs and people are now finding health in it. And they may not even realize why, but I really do believe it is putting them in a better hormonal place because they're not focused on restriction so much. And then they're not focused so much on um, the HIIT exercises and just overtraining, overreaching all the time because that's what's glorified. So it is interesting. I do feel like in some ways people may not be able to explain why, but there is a shift going on in fitness, especially around women. And in some ways it's really helping, which is great too. So it's not, it's not all bad like out there. A, we're in a little bit of a social media bubble that sometimes has a bit of an echo chamber effect relative to like the mainstream mm. industry. But I do agree that there's a trend for women to be stronger, eat more, do less cardio, things like that, which I think if we were, you know, but if we look at the fitness industry over the course of the last hundred years, we can go all the way back to Lulu Hump Peters had a book called The Key to Calories. And she originally was, you know, we're no longer going to think of this as like a slice of pie. It's gonna be X amount of calories of pie or X amount of calories of bread. And we kind of go through, um, you know, restriction has been prevalent for, you know, quite some time in the fitness industry, especially as it pertains to women and that do, you know, do more, eat less mentality does tend to prevail. Now, I think what's especially important is that we have to understand that during certain seasons of life, it's okay to eat less and exercise a little bit more mm -hmm. if your goal is fat loss. That's okay. The problem is you're not meant to do that in perpetuity. When you do that in perpetuity mm -hmm. or you attempt to, because it would be very hard to actually sustain that deficit in perpetuity. If you were to try to do that over time, it will induce fatigue and your body's also going to adapt to those repeated behaviors. So we have to understand that we need seasonality in our approach. So just like we probably shouldn't just always eat more and do less. Well, you know, on the other side of it, well, we probably shouldn't always do more and eat less. We need a balance 
of that stimulus of we should have seasons where maybe we do have a fat loss goal or we want to improve our body composition or we're trying to decrease that dress size and that's okay. But then on the other side, also realizing we need to spend some time building muscle. We need to spend some time maybe at maintenance calories. We need to spend time focused on recovery and not enhancing cardio too much. And so while I do think it's very positive that we've sort of shifted the narrative so that women are focused on resistance training, focused on eating more, doing all of those things, really the message is the reason why this is working is because of what you did before this current mm -hmm. phase. Yes, right? exactly. And so we lose context, we lose the nuance, and that's so important when understanding why the current nutritional strategy is working or not working. Yes. I love that you brought that up because so many times women will come to me and say, well, maybe my solution is reversing and they've just barely laid out their entire history. And I'm like, no, <laughs> your solution is not, you've been, re you've been quote unquote reversing, reversing or your whole, life. <laughs> your whole life. Yeah. Like this is not the time and yeah, place. Like when a client starts and can I have an untracked meal on Friday? And you're like, you're, you know, that's, I remember having a coach at one point who was like, um, this wasn't directed towards me, but it was on a social media account was like your entire life was an untracked meal up until this point, you know? So it's yeah, like finding like, that balance of freedom and discipline and structure and, you know, respecting the fact that sometimes that change is needed. But I, I do think that's also, you bring up a really, really good point, which is reverse dieting has grown in popularity. Not every person needs a reverse diet. In fact, mm -hmm. I think only 12% of Americans are technically metabolically healthy right now, meaning there's a lot of people who are insulin resistant and overweight. Those people do not need to be increasing calories. The people who need to reverse diet are, you know, the fad dieters, the people who are chronically exercising, you know, going to the hit classes. They've been in the fitness industry bubble. They've been following the influencers. They've been trying to shrink themselves down for a period of time. And that person who burns the candle at both ends and has been largely overactive and underfed is a completely different client avatar than the mm -hmm. person who is part of that 88% of Americans that's metabolically unhealthy. And we need to understand that even within that client population of fitness enthusiasts and people who have been trying to shrink themselves for years, there are some folks who actually are not ready for a reverse diet because they either have GI dysfunction or they have something else going on where adding mm. food may actually exacerbate the issue because you know they won't digest it or it's going to compound on the current things they're doing. Or they do need a reverse, but we need to make some food substitutions, stress reductions, training reductions so that the, you know, the addition of food can work. Sometimes we need to rest first and, uh, you know, kind of calculate. So I'd say there's a number of different paths, probably, you know, upwards of three, but this is why understanding someone's health history is so important before just embarking on, okay, well, reverse dieting is trendy. So I'm going to do a reverse diet, or mm -hmm. I'm sure it'll come back into, you know, a season of, Hey, you know, we're going to train and this is the best way to adhere to this particular macro split and achieve like a lower calorie count. Um, you know, that's, that's certainly had its time as well. So I think we just need to be aware enough to be able to kind of audit not only our own experience, but if you're a coach or, you know, uh, you know, whether a health coach, nutrition coach, personal trainer, listening to this, understanding that, uh, the potential solution is completely relative to the person that you're coaching, right? And just because something is yeah. good, broadly speaking, like I love that mm -hmm. women are focusing on resistance training, that's wonderful. And some of them do need to eat more. I would really hope that we're not taking part of that 88% group that's insulin resistant and really needs to move more and be mindful of their caloric intake and eat nutrient dense foods, control those things. Um, I, I, you know, we shouldn't be just all of a sudden just ramping calories in an individual out of the mm -hmm. gate just because we see it on Instagram. That's such a great point. I This week alone had five or six people land in my DM and they're all asking me, they're around 30% body fat. They're all asking me, should I build right now? I'm like, why would we, why would we necessarily build at 30% body fat? Like there's so much recomp that can happen at that body fat percentage if we just, you know, push calories down and get you into a bit lower uh, body fat percentage, and then you'll be able to see it. You'll still be able to build and cut at the same time. I don't think that that, that eating more right now, because what happens when you eat more is now we're going to be putting on body fat too. So in this situation, the answer is not 
build. So I love building muscle. And I think that that's why they asked me is because I focus a lot on that. But I also understand that that's not, that's not always going to be your solution. And, and I would make that statement of around 30%. That's not our solution right now for optimal health. I, I think we've got to drive body fat percentage a bit down before we even start cycling through um, builds at that point. And if they're new know, to training, we can still build muscle through simply yes. adding resistance training and movement yes. without the addition of calories. You could simply focus on the quality of your foods, energy maintenance, walk a bit more and get in the gym for resistance training and you will improve your metabolic health. You will likely recomposition, especially if you're new to training, you know, mm -hmm. we have those novice adaptations, which are really favorable. So if you're new to training, leverage the fact that you can build muscle out of the gate simply by getting in the gym with a proper program. And so if you're messaging Lindsay and you're interested in quote unquote building, well, what if you could actually improve your overall metabol metabolic health and get some strength in the gym, do that mm -hmm. resistance training, um, while simultaneously improving things like insulin sensitivity, you know, cardiometabolic health and all of yeah. those things, it doesn't necessarily warrant, you know, a several hundred calorie addition at that point in time. And it's also another thing about building. This just made me think of it is it sometimes people will tell me I've been in a build eating for 500 calories plus for a year or whatever like a, a crazy amount of time. And I'm always thinking like, you realize that builds are the other side of the extreme. Like we have calorie deficits, in my opinion, are leaning towards an extreme. Builds are also leaning towards an extreme. I don't think that that's healthy to be overfeeding all the time for a year. Like our body can't, in my opinion, it's going to have a really difficult time constantly being overfed. What are your thoughts on that? I completely agree. So when we push calories above maintenance, we have to understand while our current insulin sensitivity may vary based on our current body composition, that eventually simply by increasing calories or carbohydrates, dietary fat, we're going to impact our metabolic health when eating in excess of maintenance. So while I'm a huge fan of reverse dieting or even pushing past maintenance into a muscle building phase and potentially being in that caloric surplus, we have to understand that just like a caloric deficit, there's seasonality to the surplus mm -hmm. and it may be helpful in a period of time in supporting recovery, progressive overload, making some gains in the gym. But if you push that for too long, you may end up in a situation where as a result of those added calories, you may gain some additional body fat, which it's okay to gain some body fat, but if it's all of a sudden, you know, skewing things like your fasted glucose, your insulin function, and now we're moving into, you know, like pre-diabetic glycemic dysregulation territory, that's not a good thing either. That's still, uh, you know, a hormonal change, just like on the other side with the chronic dieter, you may see mm -hmm. hormonal changes. So that's really where I think having a rotational approach or strategic approach across um, you know, just multiple seasons and having your end sort of goal outcome in mind is important, but just because, you know, dieting for years on end doesn't serve you doesn't mean we need to go to the other extreme of a surplus on end you know, or excuse me, surplus for years on end, because that could have, you know, its own sort of detrimental ramifications. Yep. I love that. Awesome. Okay. So really quickly, Talk to us a little bit about your book. When is this book coming out? I was doing some reading on, you posted about it on Instagram, and this is what he he said on Instagram. This is what Sam said. Said, I created this book because the conventional approach to dieting is fundamentally flawed. Metabolism Made Simple, that's the name of the book, offers a better solution. You can change your body and your health for the better without quick fix gimmicks or fad diets in meta. Uh, metabolism made simple. I provide a wealth of readily understandable science, easily followed systems. I love that because systems, I swear, it comes down to systems and re uh, repeatable strategies. I expose the real reasons why many diets fail and helps you avoid preventable pitfalls. This sounds awesome. So when is this coming out? I hope it's as awesome as it sounds. 
It's true. I, I know you really yeah. built it up. Don't don't let us I down. Writing that, it just you know, the editor does sort of tweak your book description before it's allowed to <laughs> okay. land on Amazon and stuff like that. Uh, so the book, you know, pending publisher compliance to you know printing and layout and timelines, we're currently scheduled for a November 2022 release. Uh, which will likely range between November 1st and 15th. I'm trying to get it out before Thanksgiving and the holidays so that when you go to visit family or you're on the plane, you can read it or, you know, I'm trying to fit it in with with the season and time of year. Typically, um, those will release on a Tuesday, kind of a random fact, but will likely okay. come out in that sort of two to three week time period. And Metabolism Made Simple is essentially me condensing some of the strategies you know, rules, they're really more like guidelines, but also systems, frameworks, methods that I've used over the years as a coach to help people in their transformation, but also teach the science of nutrition and metabolism to coaches in a way that can be applied in a variety of different client transformations and, and formats. So the book will sort of walk you through first an understanding of what is our current problem within the industry and why do we sort of have this problem you know on our doorstep then from looking at the problem we begin to unpack potential solutions but first before we can look at implementation and actually you know the steps we need to take or the interventions we have to first understand what metabolism is in the first place and why it's so important to our overall health and the sort of nutritional choices and decisions that we make so it'll bring you through kind of that baseline understanding of nutrition and metabolism. And then we'll walk through some sustainable strategies. I talk about sort of the five laws um, of like metabolic success, if you will. And I'm bringing you through the concept of, you know, why we see things like metabolic adaptation. So I teach you to mitigate adaptation, you know, uh, maximize adherence. We're going to manage appetite. Be mindful of your micronutrient status. And then we also want to maximize absorption and assimilation, which is basically your gut health. So through these things, I find that if we can be consistent across the board, you know, if you can adhere to something over time, if we manage your appetite, you're much more likely to stick with it. And if we're not experiencing the chronic dieting and metabolic adaptation, transient, like short periods of metabolic adaptation is okay. But when we have it long-term, that can be very detrimental to our progress. So I sort of outline these particular strategies and then ways we can audit our progress, check in with ourselves, and even a little bit of an intake system that can be used before you even start your journey in the first place. And then really some just practical tools at the end as far as beginner, intermediate, and more advanced strategies. Um, I really did not get into uh, like one set approach or here's a diet plan. It's really more of a critical thinking thought leadership book than it is, hey, here's my book. And uh, in the last seven pages, you're going to find three different you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner recipes. That's just totally not my style. <laughs> I want to help people think differently about the problems that exist within the fitness and nutrition industry. And whether you're a coach or health enthusiast or just, you know, just kind of on your own journey, um, trying to improve your health and fitness, it can apply specifically to you regardless of kind of what um, you know, background and health and fitness walk of life that you're coming from. So I'm super excited about it. It's definitely more geared to be um, helpful for coaches who maybe don't have that huge understanding of metabolism and hormones yet. It's really more of that. I view this book as kind of a gateway drug uh, I understand that there's more to the story than just the sets and reps I'm doing in the gym. And I want to learn more about nutrition. I want to learn more about metabolism. And so I created this to be kind of the foundational piece to help get people there. I love that. And it's based off of education because as a coach, I can tell people listening here that it doesn't, I can hand out recipes all day long. And if it's missing the education piece, I feel like that's just, that's the connector. That's when dots start connecting is when you educate people and they're like, oh, that's why I'm doing that. Oh, that makes sense. And now because it makes sense, they're able to apply it in a way that is more sustainable for themselves versus me handing them macros or handing them a few recipes. So I love that approach. I'm excited. In your own transformation, there's a lot of citations in this book. So um, to the point where there was literally a citations team that went through and, you know, looked at essentially all of these different sort of things that I put in from various journals and uh, different books and background information. So while I have my own methods, models, frameworks, and systems, and certainly my own opinion on topics in the industry, uh, we did select uh, specific, you know, strong levels of evidence, whether from 
you know, human trials and randomized control trials, systematic reviews, um, journal articles to essentially substantiate the information provided in the book. Um, so as you're moving through it, you'll realize, you know, there's more than just Sam's opinion here. This is actually accumulating. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an aggregate of a lot of information, you know, information from the industry. I just try to explain it in a way that's a bit more digestible and actionable than if you were to go, you know, open one of these scientific journals and just be overwhelmed with the information. So really try to parse out what's most important and what can we leave behind and just allow people to have the right critical thinking tools uh, to where hopefully, you know, people can be applying this for several decades rather than kind of our whole trends that we talked about earlier with slim fast and things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been great talking to you. I've learned so much and I'm excited uh, to introduce my listeners to you. Go follow him on Instagram um, at Sam Miller Science. And then you have a podcast as well. So I'll link in the notes to that too um, because you are just a wealth of knowledge and I really appreciate um, the platform that you have in fitness as well. I feel like extremes are easy. I say this all the time, extremes are easy, but you know, that gray area um, in the middle is usually where wisdom lies, yeah, right? It's just, it's a messy and, area. It's not necessarily fun uh, to be in the middle mm -hmm. because you have people kind of coming at you on both sides of the argument. So it's not, it's not always the most popular place to be. And it's not always where you get the most attention from a marketing perspective. Yeah. So it really does uh, present a number of different challenges. But if you enjoyed this podcast and how I kind of speak about things, I do have over 400 episodes of the podcast, Sam Miller Science, which is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, Amazon or Audible, however they kind of deliver things there, any major podcast platform, and then the book website. So even though we are going to launch on Amazon in November, if you want to kind of get ahead of the curve with a, you know, the book wait list, I'm going to be doing some special promotions the first week of the book, which would mean um, not only you know grabbing it at potentially a lower price, but I'm also going to be doing um, some master classes and different things for people who are um, the first to buy because it does help sort of support the book when we have an increased number of sales during that first week. So not only will we be doing like special pricing, but it's also going to be essentially like, hey, if you grab this book, um, I'm going to do some extra live teaching for any uh, anyone who's, you know, showing interest in the book and grabbing that. So metabolismmadesimple.com is the book's own website. And through that, um, you know, I'll be able to send you kind of newsletter updates and things like that related to the book release, uh, which, like I said, I'm just hoping this is a lot more accessible because while I do have a live program for coaches, um, you know, FNMS, which is at metabolismschool.com, that program is just a lot more in depth and higher level. And so there's certainly some people listening to this who maybe want to have like the starter version, right? Which is where that's where yeah. the book comes in. That's what it's designed to do. And I'm super excited to be able to share it with you guys. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Sam.